And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Monheim Microphones. We'll be receiving our new Monheim Microphones soon, and we're very excited. Monheim Microphones designs and handcrafts top-tier studio microphones and preamps right here in the United States in Hollywood, California. Their incredible line of innovative microphones and designs are used around the world by everyone from podcasters to top-charting record producers and singers. They recently released their new royalty microphone, Monheim Microphones Unparalleled Excellence, monheimmicrophones.com. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on January 27th, 2023. John Perlin is a professor and visiting scholar in the Department of Physics at University of California, Santa Barbara. He is the author of the newly released edition of A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization. Perlin says, it is my hope that the new edition of A Forest Journey will make clear the imperative humanity faces because losing our forests would not merely be the end of nature, it could mean the end of us. Originally published in 1989, the book's comprehensive coverage of the major role forests have played in human life earned it recognition as a Harvard classic in science and world history and is one of Harvard's 100 great books. In the new edition, Perlin cites data on how humanity has cut down half the trees on the planet in the last 12,000 years. And that deforestation continues at an alarming pace with 15 billion trees removed per year. That's 500,000 square miles of forested land lost since the first edition of A Forest Journey in 1989. Perlin is also the author of three other books, A Golden Thread, 2,500 Years of Solar Architecture and Technology, From Space to Earth, The Story of Solar Electricity, and Let It Shine, the 6,000-year story of solar energy. Perlin lives in Santa Barbara, California. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, John. We're delighted you could be with us today. I am too. We've been talking back and forth, Hal and I, about the book that you wrote, and we want to find out about how you got your early start connected to the environment and how you wound up where you are as a physicist Okay, well, uh, I'll begin at, say, about six or seven years old in California when we eat our avocados, which we eat three times a day. We would take the uh, large pit and, you know, put it in, uh, like, uh, water 
and to watch the roots sprout and watch the leaves grow and then plant it. So that was early beginnings. Also, when I was 11, I won a major national prize on asking the question, if a seed is so small, why is a tree so tall? And the award was the uh, first book of trees. Oh, that's great. That's fabulous. That's fabulous. Then uh, when I was in eighth grade, I did tree rings dating for my science projects. And also just like a regular kid, I had a tree house, right? And also a amazing pine that was growing in our backyard uh, because we were on a hill. And because once again, it was fighting for photons, you know, fighting for light. Uh, it grew on an angle. And so I used to shimmy up the tree. It was huge. But how did I get to the uh, book you're uh, wanting to know, right? Yeah. Okay, well, what happened was I wrote a very successful book uh, and also a breakthrough book on the history of solar energy. And what happened was I discovered that all the civilizations, when they changed the solar, were doing it because they were running out of wood. So once the book was finished, I asked the question, if all these societies uh, were running out of wood, they must have cut down all their trees. But also it must have been a huge impact because it's sort of like uh, parallel to running out of oil. You know, so um, I started to spend a real journey, a journey that led to me living outside in a friend's backyard for four years because I had no research grants, but I thought I had something that was breakthrough. And that was the role of wood in civilizations because I, I, I hypothesized, well, if wood is so important as a building material and a fuel, it must have had a undue influence on societies. So without any kind of research grant, I had to basically sleep outside, like I say, on the grass in the backyard. Although in California, you, you know, I expect no tears from you guys because what we call cold is what you guys call warm. <laughs> You know, so I kept on discovering new and new materials and I taught myself in all about like eight different languages, how you say wood, how you say pine, you know, oak, etc. And there's all these lexicons in various uh, languages and what a lexicon does, you look up the word and it provides you with all the passages in the literature of the time. And so that keyed in my work. In fact, one thing I couldn't do was cuneiform. Mm -hmm. Right. Unfortunately, I had the uh, help of uh, several very uh, generous people, like one very significant woman in the community found my work to be very valuable. So she gave me the keys to her laundry room and set up a computer and allowed me to have office space, even though I was living outside. And so that provided me with the capability of writing the manuscript. But then came all the rejections, right, from all the publishers until one of the leading environmental people at that time, the 1980s, read what I was doing and recommended it to Norton Publishers. Uh huh. But that was uh, didn't work out either because I got a lot of national acclaim from that, but they weren't too keen on it. They were in New York and they thought that people were being environmental because they saw people with backpacks on the subway. So they were going to pulp the book. You know, I begged and pleaded. I said, why don't you auction it off? See if anybody else is interested. 
And uh, sure enough, I got the best, like Harvard really uh, loved it. And so they went full in and I have the certificates. They named the book as one of the Harvard 100 great books ever published by the press. And that included people like E.O. Wilson. Yes, yes, yes. E.O. Wilson had wonderful studies on ants. Right, right, right. So uh, when I was in the same league as EO, actually, it turned out, I didn't know this, but like a decade later, I learned that uh, uh, EO Wilson's editor at Harvard was my editor also. That's wonderful. John, do you have a sense that the book is used as a textbook? If not, what would it take to get it into the uh, hands of students? Well, I think this new edition will get it into students because, have you seen the book? Oh, oh, yes. We've yeah. both read it. Well, we both oh, read it. you know, you, don't you think it's beautiful? It's I do. beautiful. You know, so beautiful. I think it's the best looking book I've ever seen. And it's not because I'm the author. They did the design. And the one thing you can say about Patagonia are the many things you could say about Patagonia. But the biggest thing is they always do the best. They really well, do. Yeah, well, what we need to tell our listeners is that eventually after the book kind of ran its steam, it was hard to find. Oh, my whole life is like serendipity. And that's how Patagonia got it. (laughs) Well, well, do you know how Patagonia got it? You want to hear? Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, my whole life, for example, the reason you asked me about being a physicist, I'm not really trained as a physicist, but what happened was I was uh, a single dad and I had to pick up my boy from what's called UCSB after school, you know, for all the little uh, geniuses where they get the run of the university, like being graduate students or something at six or seven. (laughs) And... But the university is nine miles north of Santa Barbara. So I would have to, because I didn't have a car, we'd have to take freeway flyer that goes from the university to the city of Santa Barbara. And there was this guy on the bus, turned out he was a professor, and he asked me what I did. And I just so happened, once again, serendipitously, 25 piece of the transcript of the most amazing review from the BBC World Service. So I just gave it to him. And three weeks later, he called me up and said this was one of the five best books he ever read. And would I come and meet his colleagues? And then four years later, he uh, won the Nobel Prize. And I don't know if you know how important Nobel laureates are on a campus. Oh, yes. I mean, they're, they're like they're like the uh, gods, like the king's imperial uh, majesty of the university world. And so he asked me to do a, a colloquium for the science departments at the university on global warming. And that was a flaming success. So then a year later, when I had absolutely no money, I get this call. It was August 16th of 2003 where um, Dr. Cohn, Nobel laureate and most published person in the world in physics, asked me to join the physics department. Wow. 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 How amazing is that? And actually, when he was 93 years old and his brain was starting to, you know, um, the two things he could remember was A Forest Journey is a great book. And he always asked me about my son. Oh, Oh, that's sweet. That's very cool. How old were you when you started A Forest Journey? I was about 38. Okay, so that's when you started the original 
Right. I, yeah, right. Um, yeah, that's when I started. And uh, what happened was everybody thought I was totally, you know, mad. You know, I lost all my friends because I was telling people that wood is the primary material both for a building and for fuel of past civilizations. And this was the basis of these civilizations. And I think I found, you know, the uh, key to the, uh, you know, what is it, the, uh, the lost ark or something? Yes, yes. Well, this is part of history that nobody talks about. No one ever talks about it. And when I'm reading this book and you find out all the history that's connected to it, you think, how did our history books miss this? Well, that's what I asked too, because I mean, for example, you read Ezekiel in the Bible. Right. Um, there's a whole uh, section on comparing a, a leader to a cedar tree. Right. And also the um, most important dictum in Genesis, for example, is to protect the uh, trees. I can even say it in Hebrew, lishmor et asim, which means to almost to physically uh, guard the trees. And that's the first dictum uh, from God to Adam. Which is an interesting dictum because humans do need their shelter and they do need warmth and they need fuel for cooking as well. Exactly. And what people really don't consider is that the main cause of deforestation, just like you said, is heating and cooking, what could be more basic to the uh, human experience, because we don't have the protection of like thick hair and we're not consigned just to like the tropics. The whole expansion of humanity actually would have never happened had we not had the idea of fire. Right, exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, I, I touch on all that because that's how they believe language developed because fire provided a warm space and also provided light. So suddenly we became masters of the night where we could sit around and start talking. And keep the predators at some distance as well. Exactly. And, and that's why the uh, myths like the Prometheus myth is so significant because actually in every society, uh, people have this idea that somehow humanity stole the fire from the gods because who could discover such a game-changing technology? This is something I think uh, no one really has considered is we are the only species that knows how to make fire. There's other animals that A, learn. There's other animals that do speak and communicate, but none are capable of fire. And from fire comes the entire story of civilization because A, it allowed us to leave Africa. Two, it allowed us to make very uh, powerful tools. And C, it allowed us to uh, make uh, ceramics, which were the utensils of you know, millennia. And then, then you think of the ships, uh, until the Monitor and the Merrimack went at it in the uh, Civil War and proved ironclads to be uh, capable, all products went by boat. Yeah, and you think about the, the history that you have chronicled in this book and the beautiful block prints that are in this book really show how important wood is, not only to use for books and for paper and for everything else that we think about, but for the, for the sheer basics and to actually create a kingdom around wood. And, and that's still happening today. Like, for example, there was this piece I watched on the news about Afghanistan, yes. uh, you know, and the, and the extreme cold right now. 
And what is the main problem is the lack of wood for fire. And that's because it's been cut down many, many years ago. And that's another amazing thing that opened my eyes was with the Epic of Gilgamesh talking about going into the nearby mountains and collecting those huge trees. Well, you know, with the Iraq conflict several years ago, you looked at the mountains and there's not a tree uh, standing. Yeah, it's mind-boggling. Actually, the philosopher Mencius in the third century of BCE, he basically said the definition of a mountain is a forest. And he said, look at New Mountain, there's no trees. So there must be something totally unnatural about this. And what is unnatural about this? People have come up, cut it down. And then actually the grand finale is when they, after everything's cut down, they graze and that kills all the saplings and all the seeds. Yes, yes. Well, you know, one of the questions I have for you is not only is this a wonderful tome, but Bring that here to the United States when colonists started hacking away our wood. And I had talked about this in my Woody Plant class, how important, if it wasn't for the colony here in the United States, the British fleet would have never been as big as it was, and they would have never been able to conquer what they conquered because of wood that was here and that they used for ships' masts. And the bigger the masts, the more sails, the more sails, the quicker they could sail. Well, also, also what masks do is, are you familiar with the ships of the line where yes. uh, you had a, a, a 300 gun ship, say, and they would line up and then fire at each other. If they didn't have huge masks to keep the balance, they would have tipped over. Mm-hmm. And, 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 but that has a really interesting international story because originally the mask came from, um, and I have it in the book, the map, where the mask came from. Uh, and at first they came from the uh, Baltic area. Yes. But Holland, being an enemy of uh, England, actually blocked the English access uh, to uh, the Baltic. In fact, I don't know if you ever read Hamlet. Yes. Well, you remember Elsinore? Yes. Elsinore, the reason why it's so significant is it commands the narrowest straits in the Baltic. So for the timber ships to go through there, they needed Denmark's acquiescence. And so that's why Elsinore was so significant, was it commanded total control, sort of like the Straits of Hormuz, uh, the Straits of, there's only like a a mile maybe wide of water. And so that's why Denmark and that whole area was so significant. But what happened was the British in the, I believe it's the 18th century, of the crown states of Scandinavia decided to keep uh, British hands off of their masting wood. And Mm -hmm. so if not for the colonies, the white pines, the white pines of New England, you know. (laughs) And and, and actually, uh, uh, part of the new book, I discovered that... um, Cornwallis's surrender at Yorktown was primarily based on the fact that he couldn't get resupplied by the uh, British uh, ships. And the reason why the British ships couldn't sail was because the Americans held control of all the massing timber of North America. Why isn't this a history book for uh, American children to read? Well, I asked the same question. Why did everybody think I was a crazy uh, wingnut uh, coming up with this uh, notion in the first place? Well, and we understand, and I know Hal and I, we're like adamant about trees, and we talk about it all the time. And Well, just, just think, I don't know if you saw the Great Seal of Indiana in the book. Yes. I did, yes. 
That, that says everything, where you see the uh, guy cutting down uh, the last tree. Did you know that Indiana at one time was the number one supplier of timber in the American economy? It's kind of hard to believe. When I glanced down, John, at the title of the book, you know, the back end after that colon is the role of trees in the fate of civilization. And giving myself the opportunity to read it and as Eva was saying, make all these associations with the earliest history of humans on this planet, and then fast forward to where we are today with oil being this resource that we're all scrambling for in terms of old technology, and yet the absolute critical need to move forward with the technologies that are going to back it down on carbon. It's a lot to process, and I just wonder if you could comment on, as I said, the fate of civilization. I mean, how are we doing here? Well, that's what really is, I think, a significant part of the new edition. It was like the people were writing the book for me because in the last 30, 40 years uh, since the book was first published, we have come to realize that the fate of civilization rests in large part to uh, our forests. Uh, because A, uh, forests are the number one sequester of carbon dioxide. Deforestation actually uh, causes more like uh, carbon to be released in the atmosphere than all the vehicular traffic in the world. Mm -hmm. Just just that alone. But also, one of the real news discoveries in the last decade is that everyone thought that evaporation of ocean water was the only way rain was produced. And today we know that forests generate about 46% of the precipitation. And not only do they produce the precipitation, but they actually work as relayers, places thousands of miles away to provide precipitation. And I, I thought of this yesterday, actually, that it's, it's very hard to, uh, you know, satiate our thirst with petroleum. You know, sort of like, you know, that story of the Midas touch. Right. Mm -hmm. And yes. uh, just that alone should make people uh, think because, say, for example, the trees in the Congo Basin bring 44% of the water uh, to the Nile. And the trees in uh, Siberia bring uh, the water to, the, um, to China. Right. So it seems like nations are signing up for forest preservations, at least, you know, when we come to the, the big uh, worldwide COP events and such, that there, some are giving lip service, and I'm assuming some are drawing a line in the sand, so to speak, and saying, enough, we're going to preserve what we have. You strike me as kind of an optimistic person. Because not only have you written extensively about trees, but you've written extensively about solar and how civilizations historically have used solar and, of course, how we're moving forward. Would you agree that you have a, a positive, optimistic outlook for the well, future? Well, I'm realistic because you have to understand I grew up in downtown Los Angeles where I had to, like, <laughs> deal with reality every minute. I, I don't know if you know L.A., but um, I grew up in a place called Echo Park. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. Well, you know, it's a it's a strange area because it's sort of like on either side are very beautiful hills where it's almost like, uh, and that's you asked to answer your uh, first question, you know, about uh, how did I get interested? It, it, it's almost like growing up in the country. 
and this really struck me several years ago. You look at a hill like oh, about three miles from uh, Echo Park, and you, and you see all this fast city stuff, and then you see this green area, and that's where I grew up. But you had to go down to the avenue where all the real tough hoodlums were. And, you know, I was just like, you know, the same I am today, like a goofy guy who uh, is really interested in in the world and in nature. In fact, I spent my whole childhood in nature, em- one empty lot away from my uh, uh, the house I grew up in, you know, raising caterpillars, you know, all that stuff, like and growing crops, et cetera, et cetera. But I went to school with some of the most hardened people you ever saw. The joke is 30% of the graduating class went to jail, uh, 30% went into the Marines, uh, another 30% went to blue collar work, and about maybe uh, 1% went to the University of California, and I was that 1% that, mm. you know, went, you know, you didn't see anybody on campus from my high school at Berkeley. But you, you say you count yourself as a, a realist. Can you talk about that a little bit yeah, more? Yeah, I can talk to them very well. Is that uh, We have all these very special interests that are trying to block the progress of, you know, renewables, for example. You have the uh, people like, you know, in the right wing who are no different than the people in the 19th century who turned the great sequoias, giant sequoias into dance floors. You remember that picture, right? That was really something in the book. If you, if yeah. our listeners see that, they're going to be blown away. Oh, yeah, I was blown away. No, doing the new edition actually was a real, real journey for me because one is like I just mentioned earlier, the science has so far progressed about the value of trees for our existential survival. The notion, for example, that before 1990 was that old growth was sort of anthropomorphized, like it has to go to the old age home, so you have to cut them down, to the fact that uh, old growth is the greatest sequester of carbon that we have in the forest. And just for our listeners' reference, are we speaking about the photo on the cover of the book? Exactly. With the no, but we're also talking about the uh, picture of the uh, sequoia as a dance floor. Okay. Yeah, there's that right. one picture that talks about how many was it 27 feet across the the floor where the people could, and they were all in their fa- finest dress and clothing, and they're dancing on top of a sequoia. Yeah, it would it would fit like oh, a 39 oh, what is it called, cotillion? Yes, cotillion. Y- you know, um, yeah. And I didn't go to the worst part. The worst worst part, but I think I have it in the text, is this really uh, united both John Muir and Gifford Pinchot, who are, were supposed to be like enemies. But when I did my research, I learned that they were actually very good friends. And uh, what Gifford Pinchot wrote was that what horrified him is when they burrowed a hole into a, a giant sequoia and put dynamite in it and would blow it up for um, grape steaks. For grape, oh, you mean just, for staking the, uh, the vineyards, staking, staking the vines for for winemaking. You know, that's where that's where the big vineyards uh, began was uh, below the sequoias and uh, gala wine. The whole book is you read it and you have a, a different appreciation. And one of the questions I have for you, John, sure. in light of the storms that you've had out in California. And after reading your book and you, you know, implying that when the first people came here to this this country, it was all forested, clear across 
Well, no, no, okay. Uh, to be okay, honest, except for the except for the except for the prairie area, but there were areas that were open. But well, well, actually, let, let me just be really accurate. Uh, there was forests all the way from the Atlantic shore uh, yes. to the Mississippi and a little over. Right. But then there was that great oh Perry. in some places. I mean, I mean, you have New Mexico, lots of forests. For example, also in northern Arizona, I, you, I mean, I've been in those forests. It's very heavily forested. It's the southern part where it's desert, and right. you've heard of the Oregon Trail, right? Right. Uh, the reason why people wa- didn't stay in Salt Lake, except for the Mormons, was that Oregon once again was greatly forested. Right. Well, getting back to yeah. what I wanted to say, where you were in California, it was all forested. Right. And how do you think California would have managed the rains they just had if it was forested? Well, first of all, I can, I can really answer that question. Well, first of all, uh, we'd have far less of a carbon problem because, like, uh, you take San Joaquin Valley, for example, where it's all cropland. That all used yeah. to be oak forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take uh, Santa Barbara, like, oh, especially, first of all, okay, the, when the vaqueros came, you know, the Mexican cowboys, uh, what they did is they brought all these hundreds of thousands of cattle and they shoot into the bark, you know, the cattle did. Then yeah. they'd, uh, like, uh, eat the seeds. And like right. I said, then they'd eat the saplings. And that caused the decline of the First Nation people in the, this area. And also, first of all, you wouldn't have had the population because San Francisco was totally built on the Redwoods. Mm-hmm. So the first answer to your question, there wouldn't have been many people. There wouldn't have been many people, but also the rains would have been absorbed by the trees. Well, yeah, well, that's, a, that's another thing. And, and that's, that was noticed very early by Plato, is that the Attican landscape was totally uh, turned into just rock because the forest was killed and so therefore you just have torrents uh the one thing that i really like to stress i have it in the book is the fact that trees are geoengineers mm-hmm. uh, from the earliest times from 385 million years ago and actually i got to fossil hunt for the uh, remains of the 385 million year old trees in your state of pennsylvania Right. You know, right. And uh, what that did was it turned like these torrents into very, what would be called maybe manageable uh, streams. So there wouldn't be the terrible flooding that we had. I can personally talk about this because uh, right uh, by my balcony, there's a creek. And what happened was, is the local utility was concerned. They wanted to exchange a new pole to one that was uh, sloping. Yes. And this was three days or four days before the rains. And what they did is they got a crew to soften up all the earth three days before the huge storm. Oh, so what happened was all the embankment, like just there was this great like a fall of earth and this huge eucalyptus, like thirty feet, uh, collapsed. Which goes to show you, and that's why we have to talk about trees because no one considered any of that when they did this. So this is like a, a microcosm of the whole mm-hmm. problem. Sure, they didn't consider the trees or the you know earth when they did the work. Even though we had in the forecast, there was a, uh, they call it atmosphere, uh, atmospheric river. River, right. You know, yeah. river. You know, yeah. <laughs> but it shows what happens when you get rid of a tree is it's holding in this whole embankment. And suddenly uh, the, the fence between my place and, and everyone else's collapsed. 
and it looks like it looks like a a minor uh, tragedy. And so, for example, the major forest fires in California have not been natural; they were caused by the utilities. Uh, in Southern California by Southern California Edison and uh, in the North by PG&E because they did not think about trees. And so to answer your question straightforwardly, there wouldn't have been the growth we have in California. You know, there were like maybe there might be 300,000 people in California. For most of the countries to get, you know, access to forests that they required, uh, they had to be uh, colonizations. You know, like the Romans had to go and conquer other countries. While in America, we just moved westward on the continent. And in fact, uh, the whole dream of Jefferson was to turn all the woodlands into farms. <laughs> well, you're living, you know, on the East Coast. The joke is always that, you know, California is kind of on the front line of the climate catastrophe. I mean, you've got the full menu of sm- smog. Innocent times, it was just smog over the L.A. freeway. Now you've got fires. Now you've got floods. Now you've got mudslides. Now you've got population issues. And yet I'm looking out at at you, John, a gentleman with a nice smile on your face. And I'm cautiously optimistic that humanity is going to pull itself out. So let let me try this question. Do you believe it is possible to reforest our globe? in a way that can accommodate 4 billion people. Yeah, well, uh, it's sort of like I read yesterday in the news. I don't know if you heard this, that was elephants uh, somehow only eat the low-carbon sequestering plants and leave the uh, big forests alone. So if we had the sense of elephants, uh, there's a good chance, you know, we just have to basically, we have to totally change from our, you know, Puritan values of the value of work to the value of not doing anything and letting the forest uh, survive and we'll be in a much better state. And we see possibilities like with uh, Bolsonaro being defeated in Brazil, for example. Hopefully in this book, it'll affect people that they see, you know, once again, we have to talk about trees. Well, you know, you know what's uh, really fascinating to me is that our weather is all contingent on where trees are located and how the airflow moves. There's desertification, an area very quickly when we lose the tree numbers. And China has been working very hard to prevent desertification in their country by planting um Metasequoidal dystroides, which is the Dawn Redwood. They've been working very hard to do that so that they can slow down desertification. And there's a good example of, of how important tree planting is. Oh, yeah. Well, well see, see, once again, that, that was a consequence of uh, Mao Zedong, who he urged, you know, everyone to make like iron in their little furnaces. So everybody chopped down all the trees as fuel. I mean, this is a so, so what they did was they, you know, totally deforested China, right? And so um, what happened was you were getting these huge, to this day, um, sandstorms into Beijing. Yes, that's exactly right. Our friend, we had our friend on, the gentleman that I worked with, who is, was, and I think he still is, the head of the forestry department in Beijing. And they, the, his job is to make sure that Beijing is planted with trees like crazy. 
Yes, and so, so you know, the, you know, this is a um, microcosm of a uh, forest journey. Is mm-hmm. uh, people cut down the trees for fuel? No trees. Huge, just storms of uh, sand polluting uh, Beijing. And so once again, we have to talk about trees because not only trees influence, and I write about that in A Forest Journey, is that not only do trees produce rain and not only do they carry the rain, but they also create air currents. Mm-hmm. that That's affect right. people thousands of miles away. And so that the microcosm of that is what you just brought up. And the only solution is to go back and restore the forest. You know, and I know in your work, you're very careful on what kind of trees to plant and where. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's important that you pick the right species because if you don't pick the right species, it's going to be worthless. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly. And that was the big problem. I think it was in Ireland. Instead of like reforesting with oak, they reforested with uh, pine. Larch. Larch was a big one. Larch is really big. Yes, in the pine, Pinesia family. And that um, I've, I was there when they were doing large, massive block planting of larch to restabilize their hillsides. Right, and uh, they would have known just from a uh, forest journey, and that's how practical the book is, it was the oak that was native to that uh, area. And it's not being, oh, what do you call it again, ethnophobic or something like that. It's just the soil is um, very significant for uh, tree growth last time I heard. Well, and you have to have a certain amount of organic material in, in order to be able to support these large trees like oaks that they have more of a, a root system that's horizontal and they're interconnected with the mycorrhiza that if the mycorrhiza is missing, they have a hard time uh, establishing. And if you don't have that multi-layer of, of nutrients that the tree needs, it's not going to grow. Right. So that's why people like you are so necessary to advise these people about it. You just can't just, uh, you know, dig a hole and plant a tree. You have to know about the soil. You have to know about the microsia. That's why it makes it so interesting for me is because it's, you know, so simple, but very detailed. One of the foundational takeaways, John, and thank you for writing this book and giving us and I hope many more readers finding it and getting similar knowledge and wisdom. But you wrote, forests always recede as civilizations develop and grow. And it seems like if I'm following this right, please correct me if otherwise, is that we're going to have to do something that we've never done before. Because our civilization is going to continue to grow. We don't know what that rate will be, but there will be approaching 4 billion people in in a short period of time. And yet at the same time, we have to be significantly putting the brakes on the world's forests and how we manage it and our stewardship approach and everything pointing toward preservation rather than harvest on a large scale. Uh, And one of the biggest problems is special interests. Uh, because, for example, the timber companies are still, right now in California, they're trying to say the way to avoid forest fires is by thinning. Well, um, what I read is that if you thin a forest, you create more possibilities of uh, wind blowing through the forest. And the only reason that I, I, I basically know the evolution of uh, the timber industry in first the story was that forests are renewable, so we can cut them down because they grow back. 
But that's false because it's shown that treating forests like crops um, creates more uh, carbon dioxide than just, you know, um, leaving them alone. Far more detrimental to regrowth than just leaving it alone. And actually, I don't know if you remember that. Actually, I, I was personally involved in that because there were uh, graduate students at Oregon State University who showed that salvaging timber was far more detrimental to uh, regrowth than just leaving it alone. And they almost got sent to the uh, jail because they wrote this article in, that was published in Science Magazine. And the attorney general uh, with the timber industry and the uh, School of Forestry, you know, persecuted these students. And finally, they smoked a peace pipe. And I was invited. I can send you the uh, video of uh, my talk there as the peacemaker between the two groups. Mm. And so the idea that it's always suggested by the timber industry solutions that keep their profits up. And we're having that problem in California, too, where Cal Fire is uh, selling off redwoods, uh, you know, to uh, finance their work. You know, we have to first realize the value of trees for our survival. And once we accept that, then we start to need people like you guys to go out and show people how it's done. So we have to change the ethic from thinking we always have to, you know, cut down things, right? To how to restore it. We sort of have to create a profitability, I would say, of uh, restoration to make it worthwhile, say, for example, pay the people in the Amazon X amount of money so they can live well and not have to resort to, you know, the mining groups, to the cattle farmers. And we have to do a lot on our country where sort of export deforestation by uh, McDonald's, for example. I mean, I've personally, see, I've personally seen all this. <laughs> you left. I was in the uh, deep inside the uh, Mexican southern rainforest, and I was in a dump truck heading towards the bus stop. And, you know, in a dump truck, you can't sit down because, you know, there's no, like, oh, shocks or anything like that. And so suddenly I saw the whole forest burning. I saw these giant cebu trees falling like, oh, they were uh, cardboard in the um, evening sky. I mean, I've personally seen all this myself, and it has to be stopped. We have to, you know, finance with our monies. We have to invest in restoration for the first time in the history of the planet. Well, it's not the first time. I mean, what's really interesting about the new material in the book, uh, for example, they discovered in Gilgamesh, which is a story of uh, destroying a cedar forest, where one of the main perpetrators on the way down, and this is in the tablet, the cuneiform, where he tells Gilgamesh, you know, who's um, the other party to the destruction, that he said, I think we've turned the forest into a wasteland, you know, very much apologetic. And then he looks to Gilgamesh and said, what will the gods think of what we've just done? Yeah, that's... And so this is, you know, this is a thought of, what, 5,400 years ago you know, make it profitable uh, to restore and make it unprofitable for destroying. In fact, one of the biggest things is you take like, is that you take the hamburger industry, right? Which is huge in uh, our country, right? And you have to somehow tone it down, not only for the health of the forest, but for the health of our people. Yes. We've covered a lot of ground, John, and I want to kind of bring it full circle and ask you, as a son of California, through and through, 
from Echo Park to Santa Barbara. Not bad. So worldwide perspective, what, what is your favorite tree? Actually, my favorite tree is my fossils, the uh, Archaeopteris, because Archaeopteris started it all. Archaeopteris, yeah. Well, and that's a really new idea. That was not in the old book, but it was because of the discovery of Archaeopteris was the role uh, trees have played in the carbon takedown of the planet. Because before the 1990s, 1994 it was, people believed that it was all geology. You know, the uh, tectonic plates, the movement of Earth, that basically sequestered the carbon. Then suddenly, it's really funny, the the guy who's the number one uh, authority on carbon dioxide, his name is um, Robert Berner. Robert Berner? Yes. (laughs) How's that? And uh, he was the one who brought up the whole idea of the role of roots in sequestering carbon, the role of Mm. roots, because what roots do is they are actually the collectors of the supplements trees need uh, to survive, like calcium, magnesium, you know. Yeah. Uh, But what happens is when they've oversatiated the tree with uh, these minerals, they give these minerals off into the soil and they capture what's called carbonic acid, which is rainwater. They take the carbonic acid and turn it into what's called carbonates, where the carbon dioxide gets locked in. And then that flows to the rivers, and then the rivers flow to the ocean, and it turns into limestone, which is sequestered for hundreds of millions of years. And so these are all new things that I include in a forest journey. I'm not a person to rehash things. I'm a person I like to learn. And this is an amazing story that the role of roots, you know, and roots are not that long. We don't even know what percentage of the biomass of a tree uh, the roots consist of. But it's the roots where so much of the activity occurs. Also, what's very interesting, it shows what we call the interaction of the whole Earth as a living planet, is that uh, some of the calcium carbonate provides the uh, shell material for the um, you know, gastropods and for the mollusks and yeah. also for the um, plankton. It was a real delight to have you on. I want to tell our, our listeners, when your book is coming out, it's coming out February 7th. No, it's, uh, it's coming. It's actually coming out on Valentine's Day. That's what I learned. Maybe you have something. Uh... Okay, so now it's Valentine's Day. Okay, so look for it between the 7th and the 14th. Right. It's a great Valentine's gift. Um, yeah, right, and... exactly. Tell your love that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you can be together under a tree. Right, 2023. Yep. Well, thank you so much, John. We really appreciate it. And we wish you all the best with the new release. And my takeaway, John, is that you're an optimist. And that has been a great gift to just have this uh, last hour with you and intuitively know that somehow it's all going to be okay. Uh, it's, it's always a struggle, you know. They say in Italian, la lotta continua, which means the struggle continues. <laughs> well, yes. again, we thank you Absolutely. very much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. And uh, you guys have a lot of work to do to uh, be restorers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you're in that group with us. Do a little bit at a time. You have a leadership responsibility to, uh, you know, be the first cadre to uh, address them. We're going to carry that forward. Thank you, sir. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited 
by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you. 